Good morning, everyone. I'm, uh, I'm grateful that you've come. I know that it's been said a couple times. I just want to add a welcome. If you have a Bible with you, you could turn to Matthew chapter 6. Uh, as you're turning there, just a couple things quickly. First, my name's Lance. If we haven't got a chance to meet, uh, my family and I have been a, a part of this church uh, committed here for the last, last nine plus years. And I also have the, the privilege and a real honor to have a, a, a calling to be able to serve as a, a pastor here, which I'm so grateful for. I often get to look at the Bible together with you at this moment. So Matthew 6 is where we're going to be. Uh, as you're turning there, a second thing just to say is that if you have a Bible with you, that's great. You could turn there. There's also hardcover ones right in front of you. And I always say the, the line is that if you need a Bible, take that, use it today, mark it up, and then bring it home. It is one of the only church-sanctioned forms of stealing uh, that we allow. And so if you need one, please. And I could just say as a matter of preference, this isn't a, a moral command. I don't believe that should weigh heavy on your conscience. But I've found that a physical Bible and studying in it and reading in it is often an easier way to remember or to recall the things that have been taught to us in it. So I don't know if ever, you've ever had the circumstance where you're thinking of something, someone asks a question, something happens in life, and you think to yourself, oh, I remember reading that. It's right there. And in your mind, you can see a, sort of a page, and you think it's in the bottom right-hand corner. Well, if you're always you know, reading on your phone or something like that, then you pull up your phone and you're like, Where's the right-hand corner? This is the candy crush button, but I don't know. You know what I'm saying? So it sort of melds together a lot of possibilities. Again, not a moral command by any means. I've found personally that having a physical tactile experience is helpful, though technology can be useful in a lot of ways. And if, if it uh, serves you better, then of course, in a hypocritical kind of way, we have the words on the screen behind me. So you'll see, uh, you'll see that in just a moment. All that being said, I'm going to begin reading in the first verse of Matthew chapter 6. And I want to say this clearly because it's going to be a little bit of a jump around. I'm going to start reading in the first verse of Matthew 6. I'm going to go up to verse 8. Then we're going to skip ahead to verse 16 and read through 18. So I want to say that right at the outset to stave off any panic you may have that we're ignoring the Lord's Prayer. We're setting the Lord's Prayer aside because we're going to come back to it over the next couple of weeks. In many ways, the Lord's Prayer is an aside. It's an application of one part of the teaching that we're going to look at in total today. So 1 through 8, then verses 16 through 18. This is smack dab in the middle. The Sermon on the Mount in Matthew is in chapter 5, 6, and 7. So this is, we're now into the sort of Oreo filling of the Sermon on the Mount. We're right into the middle of the thing. And we're going to see that Jesus continues to teach us concerning righteousness. Righteousness has a bunch of different angles. Righteousness could be about what should be normative. How are we designed what are you meant to run on? You can think of that as the Beatitudes. Jesus says, you know, you might think this, but actually blessed are, and then it's his list of how we were designed. He's talked about righteousness as it concerns ethics and the commands. He says, you know, I know that you're avoiding adultery and that's good, but the commands are supposed to go to the moral center of us in a deeper way than that. And so if He's talked about the normative idea of what is right and how are we designed. And he's talked about the deep measure of our soul and what happens there. He's now going to continue the same theme and talk about how our righteousness should look on the outside. How do we know if what we're doing on the outside is matching what ought to be on the inside? So the practice of righteousness is what we're looking at now. I'm going to begin reading in the first verse of Matthew chapter 6. Jesus says, beware. Beware of practicing your righteousness before others, before other people in order to be seen by them. 
For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Now down to verse 16 of Matthew chapter 6. You'll see the same themes. Jesus is continuing a set of three types of teaching. He says, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Let's pray just for a moment. Father, I ask that you would help us to seek the lasting greater reward. And for that to be the case, we need our hearts to be rewired, our minds to be centered. So Holy Spirit, please lead and help us. Father, we confess, we know That here on a morning like this, we are a compilation of just about every flavor of the maladies that have been inflicted upon a fallen world. We have insecurities, bitternesses, we have bad habits, we have succumbed to temptation, we're grieving, anxious, proud, and judgmental fearful, distracted, apathetic. This is the reality often of our souls and our minds. And so we ask that we would trust your mercy, which is plentiful. We come not impressively, but sincerely nonetheless. We thank you for the work of Jesus, which receives us. And I pray now that you would do that miraculous thing, not a small thing, the big thing that it is for us to see. We don't want to be blind. We don't want to be deaf. We don't want to be hard-hearted. So help us now, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen. Practice. Really? Practice. Not a game. We talking about practice? Really? That's the introduction to Matthew chapter 6 from one Alan Iverson. Practice is the inevitable way to describe your inner life 
and your greatest needs and your greatest desires finding their way out to your habits. Practice, most of us know, is the way that we engage in the things that we are pursuing. My guess is that you have had your share and your own experience with practice of some sort. Perhaps in small ways, with music teachers or instrument instructors. The habitual, ongoing, sometimes forced practice of getting better and rehearsing so that you might instinctually become the thing that you want to become. Practice is something that leads us somewhere. And Jesus is going to say that practice overall is a good thing. I would say that he even anticipates that practice is an inevitable thing. That all of you are practicing. That I am practicing. I am letting my deepest wants, desires, my needs, the way that I view the world, those things are coming out day by day, and I am rehearsing getting better at and becoming the thing that I'm aiming at. Jesus anticipates that this is just the way that life is going to be. And in most senses, practicing is good. But we need to be careful to realize that Jesus opens his phrase in Matthew 6 by saying, beware of practicing. And that seems like an odd thing to say. Maybe there's some eight-year-olds who are being forced to learn their instrument right now, and they said, exactly, beware of practicing. The reality is, is that just practicing can often lead to bad habits. It was the great Vince Lombardi, football coach, who said that practice doesn't make perfect. Perfect practice makes perfect. His idea there, the thing that he's driving at, is that it's not enough just to go through the motions. You may be practicing the wrong things. Vince Lombardi, of course, was powerful and had a lot of success to back him up. I often thought, just think how great of a winner Vince Lombardi could have been if he hadn't been riddled with such a terrible football team in Green Bay. You know what I mean? My family grew up Vikings fans, so I, you, can't, you, can't just, you can't just praise someone like Lombardi. You have to say something sarcastic. His phrase, perfect practice makes perfect, has been adjusted and I think thought upon well. I heard a, a sort of correction type phrase that says, you know, practice itself, even perfect practice, can't make anything perfect because that's just part of life in this world. We won't be perfect. So someone came along and said, no, practice makes permanent. The practice makes the things that we are doing and the direction that we're aiming, it makes them more permanent, more habitual, more commonplace for the way that we live. And Jesus now seems very concerned. He has those that are following him. He knows where he is headed. He knows the life that he's going to offer to all of those who would accept the forgiveness that he bought in absorbing the wrath of God for our sin. He knows the life that they're going to be living and the hope they'll have because he overcame the grave and his resurrection. He knows that Christians need to begin to walk and think and act like Christians, and there's no other way to be than to practice. And so what he's going to tell them is that just be careful. There's a way of practicing that can actually reinforce bad 
habits. I've mentioned instruments a couple of times, and I think that I'm speaking longingly. When I was a kid, I rejected music altogether. To practice an instrument, my mom played piano. She taught my little sister some, but not me, because I would have been required to sit still, for one thing, and to be inside, two things that I hated. So I never practiced, and it wasn't until my early 20s that I finally decided I should learn something. I lived with five other guys. We were staying in a little dorm-like setting in the missionary world that I was in, and there was a time when I woke up one day and I realized that all five of the other gentlemen that I lived with played guitar. I was the only loser. That's how it felt. I'd come in the night sometimes and everyone's just jamming out and they're like, oh yeah, did you hear this song? And I just walked through all nerdy-like saying, yes, it sounded good. So I finally thought to myself, I should probably learn this. That coupled with a few other moments, there was a guy who had a, a band that was a part of our team and he did a, a, a service that was sort of a release of the music. And quite honestly, he just looked so cool. Like everyone was watching him like, this guy's just cool. And he sang a song that he wrote, a love song for his wife and gave her flowers. And I remember thinking, not only should I be more competent in music, like all the five guys I live with, but don't you want to be cool? So that was a little bit of a touch. And then finally, I thought, ministry-wise, I remember one time in the middle of nowhere in Southeast Asia, I was with a team that I was leading, and we wanted to pray and worship, but no one knew how to play any instruments. And so we attempted to sing a cappella together in the worst cat-stabbing of a choir you've ever heard. I finally decided I need to learn So I picked up one of the five guitars anytime I could in the house that I was living in, and I began to try to find chords, and I basically sort of fought my way over the course of a couple years to the place where I thought that I could at least play some of the three or four chords necessary to learn every Christian song ever. But here's the problem. I found that eventually my practice actually, in some ways, was hindering my ability to be good at guitar. Because when I sat with someone who was good and they said, oh, just do this thing, I realized that I had often learned shortcuts and bad habits to the thing that I was learning. So they would say, just do this. And I would say, my finger is not there and it can't move in that direction. I now had permanently bad habits. So rather than getting closer to the thing that I imagined to be, in some ways, I had set up immovable barriers. And this seems to be what Jesus is saying. What's behind the word beware is essentially this. He said, you know those people out there who seem like they're getting as close to righteousness as possible? They're actually getting further away. There is a way to practice a sort of outwardly godly life that is not leading you closer to godliness, but actually further away. And that's going to be the warning of this whole text. Practice, but practice in the right way especially when it comes to your righteousness. So there are going to be a few different things we're going to look at concerning practice. The first thing to say is Jesus is going to make this point over all that we just read. Practice, but not like the hypocrites. It's going to be the first thing we're going to see, and we're going to see how that goes through all of it. Practice, comma, but not like the hypocrites. That's going to be the first point, first concept. Then we're going to see an invitation. Jesus wants us to see that practice is actually a window to our wants. So first, practice, comma, but not like the hypocrites. Second, practice as a window to our wants. And then finally, we're going to see that practice ought to be relational reinforcement. That's the thing that ought to be becoming permanent in us, relational reinforcement. So let's look at these things together. The first thing to notice is that he says practice. 
You may be the kind of person who, when you see the word beware of practicing, you'd rather just put a period right there and say, yes, I give up. Don't practice is the key, but that's not what Jesus says. So he starts in verse 2, thus, and note these little words, they're important, when you give to the needy. What's the anticipation from Jesus? You will, in fact, give to the needy. He tells them what not to do, but he goes back to it again in verse 3, but when you give to the needy. So he's not letting them off the easy hook by saying, practicing is hard. I don't want to practice the wrong things. Therefore, I'll just give up and do nothing. He says, no, no, no. Practice, comma, but not like the hypocrites. And that same theme is in every single one of these. Verse 5, he says, when you pray, not like, and he goes back to verse 6, but when you pray. This tells us that Jesus anticipates the outward life that we ought to have is going to include the practice of giving to the needy and praying. We ought to. He anticipates it when, when, when. He says it again when referring to the Gentiles, when you pray in verse 7. And then he goes back to it in verse 16. When you fast, don't do it like this, but verse 17, but when you fast. And this is probably a good amount of time to say that these are tried and true practices of righteousness. Jesus anticipates and comments on three of the most common ways to practice what you believe to be most true. Practically speaking, it's worth defining these things. These are the disciplines, people may say. These are the habits. These are the practices of the Christian life. The idea of giving to the needy. The concept there is almsgiving. And the very basis of the word, the root of the word itself, includes the idea of mercy. It's mercy giving. This is something that ought to be the way Christians live. So Jesus says to them, you know when you're moved by mercy and you give. He assumes that's going to be the case. So there ought to be, for a Christian, an idea that somewhere in your life, you should intentionally and with generosity seek out places to give of yourself. And Mercy kind of giving, meaning the litmus test is not, is it worth it? The first question for a Christian in their generosity and giving is not, will the output equal the input? Sometimes we're moved to give strictly because of mercy. So that's an idea of giving. Praying. Praying is a common practice for the Christian. You ought to say to yourself, do I have a practice of praying? Because Jesus assumes that you will be praying. Communing with God through prayer. Speaking to the Father based on the merit of the Son. Moved along by the power of the Spirit is the common practice of the Christian life. Our prayer life will speak more about our inner life than nearly anything else we do. So giving. The idea of almsgiving, giving to the needy, giving with generosity, intentionally, not haphazardly. Praying, praying because of the privilege we've been given to speak to our God. And then finally, when you fast, John Stott once said that he believes that this section must have been ripped from the pages of most Christians' Bibles. Because it is true, and I am as guilty as any, that fasting is often an, unlook, an, an unexamined and overlooked aspect of our righteousness. So the idea of a fast is to intentionally 
and periodically deny yourself, usually food, much like Jesus who spent 40 days in the the desert, much like Israel was commanded throughout the prophets of the Old Testament, much like John's disciples did regularly. And Jesus seems to anticipate that there should be periodic times when for the reward of and the practice of self-control in our spirit, that we give up food for the purposes of hungering and thirsting for righteousness. These are the assumed practices of the Christian life. Jesus says, though, I want you to be careful. Because giving may sound difficult. It's selfless. And praying might not be something you have time for and seems like it's invisible and doesn't have results. And fasting is hard and I'm hungry. And so he said, it is inevitable that people will look for a reward in the midst of doing these things. But he says, I want you to be careful and don't be like those people who practice these disciplines or practices of righteousness in a way to be praised by men. He doubles down in a way that is quite obvious. My job is pretty simple to say, well, what does Jesus mean? He says in verse 1, he says, some people practice these things in order to be seen. He doubles down in verse 2. He says, some people practice these things that they may be praised. Verse 5, he says, some people pray and they love to stand and pray, not because they love prayer, but because they love to be seen praying. Verse 7, he says, the Gentiles heap up a ton of words they think that they'll be heard. In other words, they put on a performance so that the righteous people will approve of their praying and that perhaps the Father himself will hear what they need. Then verse 16, he goes so far as to say, some people even go out of their way to disfigure their face so that someone would say, my, 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 you must be fasting. Your self-denial is evident. They do this so that they could be seen. What's interesting here is that Jesus puts a word over the top of what motivates all of them. He calls them something, the people who do this. He says they are hypocrites. This is probably a good time to bust out the the age-old definition. If you hadn't heard this before, the idea of a hypocrite, that name in Roman culture is a person who is a play actor. Quite literally, the one who wears the mask. So you can imagine, I don't know, I was going to come up with a Roman name, Gladius or something. He, uh, he walks in the back side of the stage and he's just Gladius. He's a plumber. Uh, he they had plumbing in Roman world. He's a plumber and uh, he's a dad and he likes to um, play dice or something, right? Everyone knows him, what he's like. He's kind of boring. He's just steadfast and straight. But then once he goes behind that stage and he puts on the mask, he's now the jester in the great play. And he's a whirlwind of energy and laughter and jokes. And for the purposes of the play, he is serving a good purpose. Those who are watching him, for all they know is that he is exactly like this. And no one thinks it's a problem that in fact he's just plain old Gladius. He's nothing like the character that he's playing on the stage. But Jesus says, here's the problem. Some people, they play at righteousness. So in their inner person, 
The person they are when only the Father is watching. And notice he makes that point over and over and over again. God is always watching. The person that they are in those places is totally opposite to and unlike the mask that they put on to pretend when others can see. And Jesus calls this a dangerous practice of righteousness. The warning here is that if you go on pretending, if you simply dress up to play at religion, to appear to be righteous, then you are not getting closer to godliness. You're actually getting further away. This temptation of soul is a very interesting one. The temptation of hypocrisy actually leads us to two very negative practices. One, a temptation to hypocrisy to be want to be seen leads us to do works of righteousness, but to do them hollowly. And our desire to be seen as merely righteous lets us off the hook of actually being righteous in secret. So it is an ongoing perpetual cycle of pretending that leads you further from God, not closer to Him. That's why Jesus makes the point. Those hypocrites, they got their reward. Well, here's the problem with getting your reward. Your reward, now you're done. You don't need to do it anymore. So if your whole motivation is for others to see you praying, once you've prayed and been seen, you can walk away and say, well, I don't have to do that anymore. I'm satisfied. So false satisfaction and a desire to be seen leads to a decline in godliness, a a decline in who you've been designed to be, not an increase. So Jesus says, here's the thing, I want you to practice, comma, don't give up on them, when, 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 but don't do it like this. Avoid the kind of play acting, the temptation of your soul to appear as something you are not. practice, but not as the hypocrites. So how are we to do this? Perhaps you felt the sting already of Jesus' teaching. Perhaps you are guilty, as I have been, of exaggerating or overestimating your spiritual life because you so wanted to be seen as someone that you were not. Perhaps if you were honest, you have joyfully told someone, hey, I've been praying for you. You thought of them a couple times over the last few months, maybe. Perhaps you have gotten to a point of discouragement because you say to yourself, I feel the the tinge of this. I, I, I want to be seen as something. I want to play act then Jesus is going to give us a way to view practice that helps us to avoid hypocrisy. And here's one of the first things that you can do. You can admit that practice is supposed to be and is inevitably a window to your wants. So if you feel the pain of hypocrisy sometimes or the pain of of lethargy because you already came to church and were seen there, I can now forget about God for another seven days. If we've all attempted to to live like this, then the first place to go to is to acknowledge that practice A practice of righteousness is actually a window to your wants. 
So Jesus says, here's what you should do. You should examine and confess. Maybe ask the question, what do I want when I blank? You see, isn't that the question that he invites the the Pharisees or the scribes or anyone who is practicing this hypocrisy to ask? Isn't he asking the hypocrite, now hold on, hold on, I see you praying there. What do you want? And you see, sometimes we lie to ourselves. Sometimes it's not so easy to see what we want. So we ought to ask ourselves in a practice of righteousness, what do you want when you come to church? What are you seeking? What do you want when you give? What are you hoping for? When you pray or don't pray, what do you want? When you fast or don't fast, what do you want? What moves you? What animates you? What are you telling yourself about the person that you're intended to be? And the hypocrite is unable to answer these questions or perhaps unwilling to examine the great dichotomy of what they're presenting that they want and what they're actually receiving. What they want is the reward of the public applause and praise of men. In John chapter 4, Jesus is going to say something very, or John chapter 5, he's going to say something very similar in verse 44. In fact, he says to them, this keeps you from believing because you're unwilling to answer or to see this question. And it's so dastardly that it keeps you from true belief. He says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from God? When you seek glory from one another. So the first place to get a reorientation to better practice is to confess all of the times and all of the ways that our practice of righteousness shows that we want the wrong things. Do you pray because you want God to do your bidding? Do you give because you want the power that comes with being the benefactor? Do you fast so that others see you as most radical, most intense, most committed? It is only in being willing to open this window to our souls that the Spirit can begin to do the hard work of reorienting our wants. My guess is that nearly every person who has ever practiced righteousness in their whole life wants the praise of others. No one wants the disdain of others. Something has gone very wrong in your heart and mind if you do not, if you want the disdain of others. What's interesting is that oftentimes people will endure the disdain of others as long as they're seen. To be totally ignored is far worse than to be made fun of, oftentimes. Because we want to belong, we want to be seen, we want to be known, so we begin to seek it through these practices of righteousness, but we're seeking it in ways that are ultimately unsatisfying and temporary. So, if you practice righteousness to be seen or praised, or to be seen or to be heard or to be seen, as Jesus mentions in these passages, then you will get what you want. It will just never be enough. 
And we must confess that there is a way to give that is mainly to give to ourselves. And there is a way to pray that is mainly praying for ourselves. And there is a way to fast that is mainly fasting for ourselves and enter in any other number of possible practices of righteousness. So in this way, practice our habits are not in themselves bad, though it may feel bad because they're going to be a window to your wants. I'm just going to say it for me. Personally, you know what I want? I want to be able to run five miles at the drop of a hat. You know what I say that I want? I want really great heart health. You know what I want? I want muscles. You know what I want? I don't want to even notice my body. I want to be stretched and so that just the fact that I have this tent of a thing that I'm living in temporarily, that it's just like I don't even notice it. That's what I say that I want. But you know what's reality? I want cake. (laughs) I want wings. I want french fries. I want to sit down. I want to beat the phone game. The reality is, is that though I feel the sting of these things, it's not the practice that's bad. Don't give it up. It's just that practice has this way of being a window to our wants that is often uncomfortable. And so Jesus says, look, the hypocrites should take a look here. And he's inviting us to take a look. What do you want? And then if you followed along... You're going to ask the next question, well, what should we want? Jesus, help us to know what to want. And he's going to give us this third category, that practice of righteousness is relational reinforcement. That's what he says. Here's the desire, that you would practice these things in such a way that it brings you back again and again and again to the ultimate reality for which you were made, familial relationship with the Father. Do you know that the whole of the Bible could be summarized? God himself summarizes it in this covenant. He says, in the future, I will be your God and you will be my people. I will be yours. You'll be mine. We'll be together. We'll have communion together. And then, and only then, will the rest of life make sense. Augustine once said, we're restless until we find our rest in him. So practice ought to be relational reinforcement. Jesus says this, no, no, you got it half right. Being seen is wonderful, but you just want to be seen by the wrong people. You esteem people too much, and you don't esteem the Father enough. You forget that it's the Father's reward that will give you ultimate satisfaction, and instead you seek the very temporary, minor reward of others thinking that you're kind of godly. You know, the funny thing about this too is I often over-exaggerate how much other people actually see or praise me. One of my best friends when we were growing up, he was really nervous about what people were thinking. I remember his mom saying to him, listen, no one thinks about you. Get over it. They think about themselves. They don't think about you. And it's so funny because even in the thing that I want to be seen, oftentimes I over-exaggerate what I think people are seeing. At best, someone might pause for a moment and think, huh, interesting. Back to my own problems. And they just move on. 
But Jesus says, when you exchange that kind of being seen, you're forfeiting the great desire of your soul, the great longing for which we are all practicing, and that is to be united intimately with the Father. So another funny thing about this text is that we are designed for reward. You get it half right. You want to be seen. You want to be belong. You want to be praised. You want to be righteous. You have the Michael Scott thought where he says, I love inside jokes. I'd love to be a part of one one day. Do you want to be on the inside? Do you, do you want to feel like you're, you're in? That's a good feeling. I think Jesus says you're, you're halfway right. It's just in the wrong direction. You're overestimating the desire to be seen and praised and belong with others and far, far, far too much of an underestimating of what you need from the Father. So the question becomes this. Why should we give? It's not for the praise of others. What's funny is, is that Jesus' example even is not even for the praise of self. He says, don't let your right hand do what your left hand is doing. A right hand is often the, the hand that, that did, did things. In fact, it was moral categories for many societies. If you were left-handed, you were considered to be evil, which is it's just funny, I guess. This spring, I realized that there were not one, not two, not three, but four left-handed people as a part of our staff meeting. And we had to fire some folks. I'm just kidding. (laughs) But he says, don't let your right hand, the doing hand, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. In other words, he's saying this. Okay, fine. If you're not going to give to be seen by others, you're going to do it to be seen by yourself. Same problem. I want to be praised. I want to feel like I'm okay. I want to be seen. We keep substituting. You might be the kind of proud person who says, I don't care what people think of me. But you think about you, you care what you think about you. And Jesus is going to say, practice ought to be relational reinforcement and think more highly of what the Father thinks of you. In fact, I would say the idea of Father here, you give so that the Father will reward who sees you. You pray so you can spend time with the Father who sees and hears you and then rewards. You fast so that you could experience the fulfillment and satisfaction that comes with the life of the Father. The idea of God as Father is the profound insight from Jesus that reorients all of our righteous doing. Our practice takes on a different shape when we remember that God is more than merely a taskmaster. He is more than just a means to an end, but He is our Father. There is a quiet, hidden strength that builds over the course of time when you have snuck away and found yourself belonging and receiving the the joy and the reward of the Father. What Jesus invites us to is not a mere practice or a play pretending of righteousness, but an experience of God Himself. And we ought to pray that the Spirit of God gives us this want. Relational reinforcement. If you miss God as Father, here's a couple ways that I think are possible you'll practice poorly, like me with the guitar. No, don't put your hand like that. It's just going to hamstring you later on. Here's some ways that you could be hamstrung later on. If you miss God as Father, you might see God as some sort of mere means to an end. Your entire bit of righteousness is merely social capital. All of your practice of righteousness could be entirely horizontal and therefore self-serving. It is performance theater to play nice with the people around you. It is putting on a show to impress mom 
It is going through the motions so that you're not feeling guilty or rejected. And one of two things almost always happens in the competition of righteousness as performance theater. One, you'll be doing poorly, and you'll be constantly discouraged in a shame cycle, wishing that you could be like those people, and therefore discouraged. Or your practice of righteousness as social capital in the performance theater, you will be killing it. And you will be the best. And you will look down on others who haven't quite figured it out like you've figured it out. And you'll be tempted to be proud and therefore lackadaisical in all the things that matters, all the things that matter. You will be articulate in your public prayer and therefore you will have no need of striving in private prayer. You will have enough means to give regularly and publicly. Therefore, you will not have to sacrifice nor concern yourself with generosity even to the least of these. If you miss God as Father, you'll be tempted to simply compare and perform with the people around you, hoping to go up the rungs of the ladder. A second bit of poor practice that comes with missing God as Father, you'll see Him as most important, perhaps. It's not social for you. It's not merely horizontal. But you will fear God in the wrong kind of fear. You'll see Him as a taskmaster. I can't wait to get to the rest of Matthew. You know how many times Jesus is going to give a parable concerning the kingdom of God? And He starts out and He says this, Okay, so it's like a master, or it's like a boss, or it's like an owner, it's like a vineyard owner. And every single time what he's trying to correct is a misinterpretation of what God as boss means. And he keeps driving back to God as father. Yes, he's in control. Yes, he's in charge. But he's father, not merely taskmaster. If you miss God as father, then you will see God as merely a boss in a great enterprise of moral machinery, You will work righteousness, but in a tit-for-tat kind of way that is keeping track of your wages. You will find yourself bitter at the grace of God because after all, they should have worked for it like you. You will be the elder brother in the story of the prodigal. And in this... Jesus says the remedy is to see practice as relational reinforcement, to remember that God is for you in such a profound way that he will settle for nothing less than a father-child relationship. So the picture we should have in our stunted, falling-down approach to the practice of righteousness, which we should practice, let me encourage us together, don't give up on the practices of your faith. If you are not experiencing the intimacy that Jesus offers in this reward from the Father, it could very well be that you were discouraged to the point of giving up. Let's not give up. Second, I want us to imagine, well, what kind of circumstance does a father have with a child like this? Don't give up and then don't be discouraged or fearful. You can't practice perfectly and it won't make perfect but the Spirit of God will help you along. Imagine less boss writing you up on demerits, boss giving you prizes because of better performance, but instead father delighted in a child learning to ride their bike. Father running alongside you falling down saying, get up, we'll practice, get up, we'll practice. A spirit coming to help steady the wheel. This kind of relational exchange is at the heart of what it means to be restored to God.
And what will happen, rather than us wanting to be seen by others, we will begin to delight in an inner experience of God that no one else can get to, and therefore no one else can take away. When you give in a way that not only do not others see you, but your left hand doesn't see what your right is doing, then you will begin to experience an inner life of the provision of your Father that will delight your soul. When you give to the point of sacrifice for someone who absolutely doesn't do it, and then the next day you wake up and realize you've been provided for again, there will be something that bubbles in your soul that knows that you and the Father have something that is intimate and castled away from others who might pull it from you or judge. When you pray, mainly because you can't wait to spend time with a God who loves you and because you're enamored by the fact that He actually listens to you, you will begin to see answers to prayer that reinforce the connection that God knows you and loves you and is for you in a way that you couldn't even explain. Have you ever had a deep relationship with someone and it goes back so far that it's difficult to even bring somebody else in? You'd be like, oh man, it's a long story. I just, well, we were in the Andes Mountains and then, the, and, then, and then just like, I just don't. You see, relationships become layered to the point where they're difficult to even describe in terms. They're no longer transactional. You know that it's possible to have a prayer life where if somebody said to you like, what's that like? And you think back over it and you say like, I just, I couldn't even explain it. I brought him my anxieties and I brought him my needs and I brought him my grandmother and I, I, I brought him my desires and my hopes and my wants. And I confessed my sins and I found forgiveness. And there's been times when he's met me and he, you didn't even know, but I've been praying about that forever. And an inner life begins to explode out of you because you've experienced God in the secret place, not merely in public for show. Does that seem possible? Does that seem like it's for someone else? Jesus is inviting you to this life. He's saying, take advantage. Don't impoverish your soul by refusing to go be quiet with your father. Learn to pray because God is there. He hears you. When you fast and clear your mind and Kill the appetite and center yourself on God. Perhaps even give up some of the money or the food that you'd have to serve others. This is the kind of fast the Old Testament longs for. It will be a tangible way for you to understand that God always meets hunger and thirst with His presence. This is what the practice of righteousness looks like. The great encouragement over all of this text is that we have access to the Father. And all of our wants and our desires and our longings and the way that we have to live out of what we deepest want, that there's a place for that. That we're not odd and we're not strange and it's not a foreign thing. That we can escape the cycle of striving the great burden of keeping up your public reputation. That those things, the small little rewards of being seen just for a moment can be exchanged for a permanent, deep relationship with your Creator. 
Here's the good news. The good news is that when you, are, you and I are starting and stopping at this, when we keep falling off the bike and the Father keeps coming, the good news is that our Father is more committed to this for us than we are. That the whole testimony of Scripture is this, a Father who says, I will not be satisfied nor rest until I have a deep and an ongoing communion with my children. So much so that I'll make promises and bind myself to them. So much so that I'll send prophets and proclaim and speak and remind. So much so that I'll send my own son in the flesh. So much so that I'll absorb the penalty for sin. So much so that I'll, I'll overcome and absolve the death penalty by the resurrecting from the grave itself. So much so that I'll send the Spirit to dwell with those who walk with me. So much so that I'll invite them and remind them that I'm building a house for them and I have a room for them. So much so that when I reveal myself in my Son, I'm going to call myself not mere God or taskmaster or great Spirit of the universe, but Father. So much so that one day we'll enjoy a family meal around a great feast and they will come. So, let's be joyful to enter into the welcome of communion with our Father. He is committed to it, even when we are not. He is faithful, even when we're faithless. Let's pray.